0: All right, well, good morning. morning. We're going to go ahead and get started uh, with our Sunday school hour. And uh, this morning, continuing our survey through the books of the Old Testament. And uh, I can't tell you how excited I have been and how much I have looked forward to our study together in the book of Esther. Uh, This is a book which captured my imagination uh, ever since I heard... um, it was John Avery Whitaker or uh, no, Bernard Walton on Ventures in Odyssey, tell this story in such a memorable way when I was uh, six years old, but it's an amazing story with amazing truth. So before we dig in, let's go ahead and, uh, and pray and ask God's blessing on our time in the Word this morning. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, um, this morning we are we're grateful and thankful that, that we can call you Father That because of your faithful son, Jesus Christ, we have access to worship, to hear from you. Thank you for your word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts this morning, that you would unfold it and open it to our understanding, and that in all these things, we would see you and your glory all the more clearly. We ask for... Your Holy Spirit's help and power in these things, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you haven't already, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Esther. This is an exciting passage, an exciting part of the scriptures, a story for the ages, a drama which plays out on the grandest of scales, one full of intrigue, heroes and villains, Sorrow and victory and romance, even after a fashion. And yet, this is no Arabian Nights tale. It is not a Cinderella story, but a true account of real people and real events which God used to deliver his people from one of the greatest threats that they have ever faced. It is one of two books in the Bible uh, which are named for women together with the book of Ruth. And it's, it's interesting to see certain parallels between the books. But in Ruth, you have a story of what faithfulness to God's purposes looks like in, um, in poverty and obscurity. And yet in the book of Esther, you have uh, essentially what is the, the exact other end of that spectrum. All of its drama plays out um, at the height of opulence and power and prestige. Esther takes place during the Persian period of world history. The Medo-Persian Empire dates from 539 BC to 331 BC. And all of this happens during the reign of King Ahasuerus, who ruled from 486 to 465 BC. And the book of Esther covers years 483 through 473 in his reign, the events of the book occur um, in the broader context of Israel's history and timeline in the intervening years between the first return of the exiled Jews uh, after their 70 year captivity in Babylon um, in 538 BC under Zerubbabel, and the second return would happen after the events of Esther, led by Ezra in 458 B.C. We don't know who wrote the book. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and even Mordecai have been um, offered up as possible authors, but we can have no real degree of certainty about any of these. Um, But what is certain, or at least what we have strong evidence for, is the dating of the book to within the Persian period. Um, The Hebrew that is used as an earlier form of Hebrew. Um, It as well contains these vivid and highly accurate details and depictions about the palace at Susa, and it uses several uh, borrowed Persian vocabulary words, interestingly, but he always, the author, includes a Hebrew word which clarifies the Persian words that he (laughs) interjects throughout the text. Words like ruler and king, eunuch, gift, recline, things like that show up. Um, So whoever wrote this book had to have been very familiar with the Persian court politics, with its history, its culture, and with the architecture even of the uh, palace complex at Susa. Um, Ancient Persia, by the way, is um, contained within what is modern-day Iran. So from these proofs, it's widely believed that the author of this book was a Persian Jew who had come back to Judea, perhaps during the second return under Ezra, and who was concerned that the Jews living in Israel observe the festival of Purim and know its history. The book of Esther is essentially the origin story of this great Thanksgiving festival of Purim celebrate, celebrated on the 14th day of the 12th month to give thanksgiving for God's deliverance. And before we go any further, I want to address the, the big question that is always raised whenever a study of the book of Esther is undertaken, and that is where is God in Esther? The sort of elephant in the room that students of this book have grappled with for. Centuries is the fact that while a certain Persian king gets mentioned more than 190 times in the book, the name of God does not appear once. Now, this is a fact that has caused some throughout church history to question whether it belongs in the canon of Scripture at all. Now, we could go into a long discussion this morning about why Esther belongs in the Bible, but the simplest answer is that. Jesus Christ himself settled this question in Matthew chapter 5 and in John chapter 10. He unequivocally endorses and upholds the inspiration of the Jewish canon of scriptures as it was in his day, which includes the book of Esther. And throughout Christ's ministry, he quotes from all three major sections of the Hebrew Bible from the law, the prophets, and from the writings. So as for why God's name does not appear in the book, a lot of ink has been spilled speculating over this question. But the doctrine of inspiration actually gives us the answer, and it is simply this. God's name isn't in the book because he didn't want it in the book. Well, why wouldn't he want his name in the book? Pastor Alistair Begg has offered a good explanation that I'm going to borrow It may be that it is to teach us that in the events of life, when God is apparently absent, he's not. The unfolding story of life as it is presented in Esther is God in the details. In one of his sermons on Esther, C.H. Spurgeon once said, although the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most conspicuously in every incident which it relates. I have seen portraits bearing the names of persons for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them. But we have all seen others which required no name, because there were such striking likenesses that the moment you looked upon them, you knew them. Like a master painter who leaves his subtle but unmistakable tell, the brushstrokes of divine providence are to be found all over the canvas of this book. And that is the central theme of Esther that we will see again and again and again. The providence of God. The providence of God can be understood as his purposeful sovereignty. The Westminster Catechism defines God's providence like this. God's works of providence are his most holy, Wise and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. The book of Esther bears overwhelming evidence to this. Again and again, as events unfold throughout the story, we have to say, That's God. That's God. That's God. God did this. And the lesson of Esther is that at all times, in every circumstance, Both the grand and the mundane, it is God who sovereignly orchestrates the affairs of men for his own eternal purpose. God does have a purpose, and it is a unified purpose. Throughout all of history, which he is working out, it is the same today as it was in Esther's day. Paul actually tells us what this unified purpose of God is in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 9, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the big picture within which all of the details of the book of Esther And everything else which God has done throughout history unfolds. This is the master plan that the events of Esther fit into. God is working to unite all things in and through his son, Jesus Christ. So when we see details in Esther, we should see them in light of this big picture, unified, redemptive plan of God. And this opens up to us a whole new level of beauty and significance In this Old Testament story, God is working out his plan. And as we see in the book of Esther, the enemy, Satan, is raging against this plan, seeking to destroy the people, God's people, through whom the Messiah would come. At perhaps no other time in history did Israel face a more dire threat to their existence than when the Agagite Haman rose to power in the Persian Empire. In Esther, all of God's unconditional covenant promises to Abraham and to David and all of his redemptive purpose were, in effect, in the balance. As Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. And had Haman proven successful in his plot to eradicate these people, there would have been no offspring, no Davidic line through whom the Messiah would come and there could have been no gospel, no church, and we would not be here this morning. Now, the main characters of this story, its events unfold through these four main people, Mordecai, Esther, the story's villain Haman and its egomaniac Xerxes. And one significant interpretive challenge that we should be aware of um, with regard to our story's heroes Any discussion of Esther and Mordecai usually raises the question of their spirituality. What was their relationship to the God of Israel? Are they part of the community of faith, or were they secular Jews, as some propose, who possessed high moral character, loyalty to their nation that God chose to use anyway? Um, And in light of some of the compromises or difficulties that we see them uh, making, such as hiding their Jewish heritage um, and participating so closely in the customs of this pagan court, Um, this can be difficult to answer, partly because the author of the book doesn't mention God explicitly, so we don't read Mordecai or Esther talking about God. I personally believe that the text does present Mordecai and Esther as trusting in the God of Israel in several instances, such as Mordecai's assuming the role of a kinsman redeemer by adopting Esther as his daughter, such as Esther honoring Mordecai, her father, and doing just as he charges her to do at every point, by both of them exhibiting the traditional rites of repentance and mourning prescribed by the law, and most especially when the time came for them to intercede with the king for the Jews, they hazarded their lives and did what God had appointed them to do. But there are plenty of good Bible scholars who are going to come down on either side of this. And ultimately, God is the one who sees the hearts. So perhaps we cannot be too dogmatic either way. Um, As for an outline for the book of Esther, um, this morning we will look at it in four major divisions. The first is uh, found in chapters 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 18. It is Vashti, removed, and Esther raised up. The second division is Haman's evil plot and Mordecai's command. And this is found in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 17. The third division is Esther's intercession and Haman's fall, found in chapter 5, verse 1, through 8, chapter 8, verse 8. And the fourth division is Mordecai's intervention, and deliverance celebrated in chapters 8 through the end of the book. So the first section that we will come to is found in chapter 1, verse 1, Vashti removed and Esther raised up. So let's let's dive into verse 1. It begins with, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces... Uh, so the author clearly wants us to understand exactly which Ahasuerus we're talking about. Uh, there are several, several kings by this name in Persian history, but only one who reigned over 127 provinces. This man is known to history by his Greek name, Xerxes, and Xerxes I. So when Xerxes came to power, the kingdom he inherited from his father Darius stretched all the way from India to Africa. And it was this who in 480 BC set out to conquer all of Greece, famously leading an army of anywhere from 300,000 to perhaps one million soldiers against King Leonidas and the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. So at this moment in history, this king, this Xerxes Ahasuerus of Persia, was far and away the most powerful man on the planet. And the author wants us to bear this in mind The events recorded in chapter 1 take place at the cusp of Xerxes' campaign against Greece. In verse 3, we read how the king gives this feast for all of his officials and his servants, his army leaders and the nobles and governors. And this is very likely the same feast which is described for us by the Greek historian Herodotus, where Xerxes laid out all of his plans for this great invasion. In verse 4 of chapter 1, we read... While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. In verses six and seven, the author describes for us in vivid detail something of the the opulence and the extravagance, what it must have been like to be in this Persian court. He says, There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. So the impression we're supposed to get is that this guy is a big deal. He knows he's a big deal and he wants everyone else To know it as well. He's building up his brand. He's drumming up support here as much as he can before he goes to war with Greece. And verse 7 says drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So it was a known practice. Uh, to historians, that the Persian military would always plan their military campaigns amazingly while staggering drunk, which might explain why 300 Spartans wiped the floor with them shortly after this. But the author is telling us something about this week-long drinking party to better explain what happens afterward. We read that when the heart of the king was merry with wine, Xerxes gets this brilliant idea. He's shown off everything that he has, everything that is except his wife, the Queen Vashti. So he sends for her, ordering her to present herself and be paraded in front of this drunken horde of his cronies, and Vashti, to her credit, refuses to come. One historian pointed out that Vashti was very likely pregnant at this time with Xerxes' son Artaxerxes, which would help explain, one, why she refused him, and also why she wasn't killed instantly for doing so but her dignity would cost her. See, Xerxes has spared no expense holding this six-month-long banquet, the whole point of which is for him to be seen as powerful and unopposable, and his wife in front of all of his buddies tells him no. So he's not happy, and he needs to save face, so he consults with his royal counselors on what his next move should be, and they tell him Vashti's got to go. That's all there is to it. She's got to go, or none of our wives will listen to us either. So time passes. Um, Vashti is demoted. Xerxes goes away away to war. And he must have had a lot of time to think about all of this while on campaign, because in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed about her. Now, where it says he remembered her, it means a remembering that's full of remorse and regret. He had acted rashly, and he knew it, and it could not be undone according to law. Now, this is an experience which might one day influence how in the future he would deal with a queen who seemed to challenge his authority. So his counselors hatch up another plan in order to cheer him up. You didn't want a king like this to be angry. Things didn't go well. So the king's young men who attend him, uh, it says, come together and tell him, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women, the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So the search for Xerxes, new queen, begins. And I'm sorry, I'll probably say Xerxes, Ahasuerus, back and forth. It's a little easier to say. And the way is now paved. For an insignificant Jewish girl to ascend to the highest rank and influence. Verse 5 of chapter 2 introduces us to our main characters of the story. Mordecai and his adopted daughter Hadassah, better known by her Persian name Esther. Mordecai, we're told, was a fourth generation Jewish exile. His grandfather, having been among those who were captured by King Nebuchadnezzar, and borne off into captivity. Mordecai had grown up in Babylon and is now living in the Persian winter capital of Susa. Verse 7 of chapter 2 says, He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own Daughter. So we learn two things about Esther here up front. One is that she is beautiful. God has made her beautiful. And second, we learn that her life has already been marked by hardship and sorrow, having lost both of her parents at a young age. We also learn how her cousin, Mordecai, assumes this role of kinsman-redeemer, not as a husband, but as a father, raising her as his own child when her parents died. In verse 8, we read, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered into Susa, the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Heggai, who had charge of the women. I don't believe that we should glamorize or minimize the hardship and the suffering Esther must have experienced by being conscripted into the harem of this pagan king at 16 or 17 years old. I'm sure this was not what she had envisioned for her life. This is not a good thing, but God in his divine providence is working it together for good. Still, in the face of what must have been a truly difficult circumstance, we see Esther acting with grace. Instead of becoming bitter or despondent, like Joseph in Egypt, she possesses a unique spirit which the scripture says won her favor, not only with the man in charge of the harem, but with all who came to know her. And when her turn finally came to go to Xerxes, we read in verse 17 that she won grace and favor in his sight. Literally the word means she carried off with his favor, she took it as spoil. This unpretentious orphan Jewish girl conquered the heart of the most powerful man in the world because of who God had made her to be. Where it says in verse seventeen that the king loved Esther more than the other women, I believe the scriptures intend for us to understand that he did love her after a fashion. See, this is a word which means to dearly love or to be beloved. It is the word used for Abraham's love for his son Isaac. It is used of Isaac's love for Rebekah. And it describes the love between Solomon and his Shunammite bride in the Song of Solomon. Now, aside from being a little warm and fuzzy, why is this important? Remember, we are looking in Esther for the evidence of divine providence, working together to accomplish his purpose. This tells us Ahasuerus loved Esther because it was God's will that he should. Beginning in verse 19, we have related to us this little subplot in chapter 2, an event which comes kind of out of nowhere, but we need to remember it because it has enormous consequences down the line. So we pick up in verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Now, the fact that Mordecai's sitting there means that he's uh, been appointed to some sort of court office, perhaps um, by Esther's influence, but he's sitting at the gate of the the court. And it says, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, through this series of events, renders this great service to the throne and saving the king's life, and it gets recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the king. We're going to have to wait to see how this affects events. So, this brings us to chapter 3 and verse 1, and this is our second major division of the book that reveals Haman's evil plan and Mordecai's command. So, in the first part of chapter 3, this dastardly villain of the drama appears on the scene, a man by the name of Haman. Now, if we were a Jewish congregation hearing this story read at Purim, at this point, the whole room would erupt with boos and hisses. And all any little kids in here would start stomping their feet and shouting and spinning noisemakers, all in order to drown out the sound of Haman's name. And this is a tradition which goes back for centuries and centuries. And the reason for it is, uh, we learn H- Haman is an Agagite. Agagite, I'm not sure how that's supposed to be pronounced. A descendant of the Amalekite people, And in Deuteronomy 25, verse 19, God told Israel that they were to blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So the Amalekites were a people, evil in the sight of the Lord, who were the first nation to attack the Israelites when they began their exodus from out of Egypt. And God says that this this demonstrated that they had no fear of God before their eyes. And because of this, in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, Samuel told Saul that he was to devote the Amalekites to destruction. He was to leave none of them alive, not even their livestock. Instead, Saul spared the Amalekite king and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the calves and the lambs. And Samuel comes and confronts Saul about this. He tells him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from becoming king. Samuel then proceeds to kill Agag himself. But before this could happen, tradition tells us that Agag, in the intervening days, had sired an heir. And 500 years later, Haman is descended from that child. This deadly enemy of the Jews. The Agagite, who we're told was promoted by Xerxes to the highest position of power in the kingdom... The vizier, second only to the king himself. So when Haman learns that the reason this other court official, Mordecai, does not bow down to him as the king had commanded that he should, is because he's a Jew, he's filled with loathing and hatred. He plans, he devises a plan to destroy not only Mordecai, but all Jews throughout the entire Persian empire. Now, before he takes this plan to the king, we're told in verse 7 of chapter 3 that Haman cast lots to determine on what day this genocide would be carried out. Now, this might seem like an insignificant detail. It would be easy to pass over, but it goes straight to the heart of this book and what the author wants us to get about God and his providence. Let's look down in chapter 3, at verse 7. In the first month... Which is the month of Nisan. In the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor or lots or dice before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Hadar. So Haman is actually seeking here the guidance of his pagan gods, leaving up to their power the choice of what day to attack the Israelites. And what happens here is amazing. So they have these these dice. And fun fact, a pastry that Jews have eaten every year at Purim for hundreds of years, known as a hamantoshan or Haman's pockets, is in the shape of these dice that were rolled to determine the date of this attack. So what happens? Um, They they take the dice, or Haman's... uh, Servants take the dice and they say, Should we attack the Jews this month? Roll. No. Should we attack the Jews next month? Roll. Not likely. Uh, How about the month after that? My sources say no. How about after that? No. Month four? No. Five? No. Six? Seven? Eight? Nine? Ten? Eleven? Twelve? One year from now is good. So, that the lot fell on the 13th day of the 12th month was a game changer. It was an act of God's providence because this date was included in the Persian edict. It could not be changed. And this gave Mordecai, Esther, time to mediate for the Jewish people, as well as the Jewish people to prepare to defend themselves against their enemies. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now again, we're reminded, God's name might be absent, but he certainly is not. He is purposefully, sovereignly, on full display, showing his providence in all of these events, big and small. So Haman, after this, after casting these lots, goes to the king and pitches his plan to destroy the Jews, and to sweeten the deal, he offers to pay into the king's treasury 10,000 talents of gold, presumably to be taken as spoils from the Jews that they were going to kill. Now, this was an unbelievable astronomical sum of money. It amounted in weight to about 336 tons of gold, or um, two-thirds of the entire annual revenue of the kingdom. So Xerxes says, you know, I think this is a good plan. I like this. I think, I think we should go with it. He allows Haman to make a proclamation in his name, to sign it with his seal, about the appointed day that is to be open season on all Jews throughout the empire. Now, when Mordecai hears of this plot, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth. It says he went out into the middle of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai is stricken with grief at the prospect of the suffering of his people and the calamity that they're facing. And he's not alone in this. In verse 3, we read, "...in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." <clears throat> So Mordecai then, we're told, goes up to the gate of the palace. He can't go in, because no one is allowed to look sad in front of the king, much less appear in sackcloth. He could have been killed for this. And Esther learns that Mordecai is at the gate wearing sackcloth. She becomes deeply distressed, and she sends clothing out to him by one of her servants, but he won't put it on. won't put them on. Esther then sends a servant she can trust to find out what this is all about and to communicate back and forth between them. Mordecai tells the servant all about Haman's plot, just how much money Xerxes stands to make out of this deal. And then Mordecai takes action. Let's pick up in verse 8. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther, And explain it to her and command her. The word means literally to lay a charge upon, to give charge to, to command, to order. He's giving her a mission. That she go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say... All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Esther's first reaction, like many of ours would be in her place, is one of fear. Fear that if she does what Mordecai is urging her to do, it could be the last thing she does. She's uncertain of where she stands with Xerxes, given that he hasn't called for her in a month. And if he doesn't approve of her coming to him unsummoned, she will die. To her, at least, this seems like an impossible task that Mordecai has set for her. Verse 14: "Though without using God's name, is the most direct reference to him in the book. Mordecai had enough theology to know that Esther becoming queen was not by chance, it was not for nothing. God had put her there, and he had done it for a reason. And by sending his daughter to Xerxes to intercede for their people, knowing the risks, Mordecai was placing his trust. In his sovereign purpose. And he's asking Esther to do the same. Look down at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast, also. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. General Norman Schwarzkopf once said, true courage is being afraid and going ahead and doing your job anyhow. That's what courage is. And In Esther's words here, we see a truly beautiful example of such courage, and behind it, The sovereign grace of God empowering her to do what he's given her to do. So this brings us to our next big division with the beginning of chapter 5. And this is Esther's intercession and Haman's fall. So as she had said, for three days, Esther fasted along with all of the Jews in the city as they cry out to God beseeching his help, and on the third day, she woke up, put on her finest royal robes, began the walk across the palace grounds through the garden, heart pounding as she walks down the corridors through the outer court to the gate of the inner courtyard adjoining the throne room where armed soldiers would have been standing guard. What must that final moment have been like? Did she stop, take a breath? Did she breathe a quiet prayer to her God? What we do know is that she stepped through the door into the inner court and placed her life in the hands of Yahweh. Let's pick up in verse two of chapter five. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman... Quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is if I have found favor in your sight, in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare. For them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. I'm not sure whether this was the plan or whether she arrived at that moment and and needed another day to, to, to get up the courage to, to bring this before the king. Uh, we're not told. But what's amazing is what happens in between this first feast and the second one. A day gives God this moment of providence to intervene. It says that Haman went home joyful and glad of heart. He's amazed that uh, his life is just coming up roses. Everything's going good for him. And, And the only thing wrong is that this Jew, Mordecai, won't bow to him. And so if only Mordecai were dead, then then everything would be great. And so his his wife and his counselors say, well, well, why don't you build a gallows? And tomorrow you can ask the king for Haman's life. And then we read in chapter 6, verse 6. On that night, or rather verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read aloud before him. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigson and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the one whom the the king delights to honor. So Haman understandably goes home disappointed after this. He's not feeling good. And his wife doesn't make it any better. She says, If Mordecai, she's starting to think here, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Verse 14 While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, "'What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled.' Then the Queen Esther answered, "'If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated.' If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, have not, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined him against the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. Now, for sake of time, we won't be able to go into this fourth major division, which is Mordecai's intervention and the deliverance celebrated at Purim. But Esther intercedes again for the, for the Jews. And Xerxes grants her request, telling her and Mordecai that they can decree whatever they want in his name with his seal regarding the Jews. So they send out decrees to all 127 provinces, saying that the Jews are allowed by law to defend themselves. And what was going to be their extinction turns into a great victory over their enemies. And 75,000 of those who hated the Jews are destroyed. And the fear of the Jews, we're told, falls on all the people. God exalts Mordecai, vindicates Esther, and accomplishes his purpose. the The message of Esther is this. At all times, in every circumstance... God is sovereignly orchestrating the affairs of men for his own eternal purpose. And it is a message for such a time as this. When the corruption of the world seems to reign, and opposition to God's people and his purpose grows, how should we respond? We must trust in his providence. And when your life is marked with sorrow and struggle and you don't understand what God is doing, trust his providence. I want to close by sharing a poem that was written by another Esther of our time. Cornelia Arnolda Johanna Ten Boom, who went by the name of Corey. her father Casper and her sister Betsy, were watchmakers, watchmakers living in the Netherlands during World War II. They rescued more than 800 Jews from the Nazi death camps by hiding them in their home. Eventually, they were informed on, the Nazis arrested and imprisoned them, and Casper, their father, died 10 days later in prison. Corey and Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany, where they held worship services every day at the end of a grueling day, using a Bible that they had smuggled in. Before long, Corey's sister, Betsy, died as well. One of the last things she said to her was, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. After the war, Corey traveled the world sharing the gospel message in Africa, Europe, the Americas, Asia, and even in the USSR, Cuba, and China. And everywhere she went, She would read this poem about trust in the providence of God. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaves with sorrow. And I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to flee will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing his truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on this word, and then we'll gather together in 10 minutes for worship. Our Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its beauty. Thank you for preserving it for us and applying it to us by your spirit. We pray that we would know you more day by day, and we ask for your blessing on the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.